Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Michael Humer. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Colorado. He, he writes about epistemology, ethics, metheetics, metaphysics, political philosophy, and he's the author of several books like Skepticism and Developed Perception, Ethical Intuitionism, The Problem of Political Authority, Approaching Infinity, Paradox Lost, and Dialogues on Ethical Vegetarianism. So, Dr. Humer, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, today I wanted to talk to you about uh, ethics, and particularly ethical intuitionism, and also later on in the, in the interview about veganism or ethical vegetarianism. So, uh, let's start with ethics more generally. Um, could you please tell us what the concepts of objective and subjective mean in ethics? Yeah, um, objective means something like independent of the observers, right. or uh, more specifically, not constitutively dependent on the attitudes of observers towards the thing um, that, that you're talking about. So um, when they say goodness is objective, that means it doesn't depend upon people's attitudes towards the thing that's said to be good. Like the thing is good whether or not people like it or whether or not people desire it, etc. And subjective is, you know, something that is dependent on the attitudes of the observers. Right. So like a paradigm example is funniness is supposed to be subjective, right? Like that's a, you know, very plausible example. So for a joke to be funny, it has to be that it amuses people or is disposed to amuse people or something in normal conditions or something like that. Um, and, you know, okay, so that's, that's dependent on the observer's reaction. Um, squareness is objective. For an object to be square does not depend upon, um, you know, how people react to it. Mm -hmm. but, but, I mean, in the case of ethics and morality, isn't it the case that it depends, I mean, what it's considered to be good and bad, right and wrong, or wrong depends on the valuations of people. I mean, it, it, these are not independent of the existence of people that evaluate things in specific ways. So wouldn't that mean that it's subjective? Um, I mean, the way you started that out was what is considered good depends on the attitudes of observers, but that's not the question, right? The question is whether what is good is dependent on the attitudes of observers. You know, what is considered anything depends upon people's attitudes because considering something is an attitude. Um, okay, but, you know, is the actual rightness or wrongness of an action dependent on people's attitudes? Uh, no. Right, so, you know, tor I think torturing babies is wrong. What if people change their attitudes about torturing babies? Like, what if most of society likes torturing babies? Is it still wrong? Yes, right, it's still wrong. So it looks like it does not depend on the attitudes of the observers. Okay, but, but then there's another question. How do we determine that something's right or wrong? Um, yeah, how do we determine it? Uh, it depends on what the thing is. Uh, if it's like, you know, torturing babies, you think about it and you immediately see that it's wrong. Right. I think about baby torture, I can just see that that's wrong. 
right? If it's something, you know, so like that's completely uncontroversial. So like, you know, it's not, it's not hard. Like what if it's a difficult question? Oh, well then, you know, you should probably like look at the moral philosophy literature or something and, you know, read the arguments that people have given. Like if you want to know whether abortion is wrong or not, okay, then you have to like read the moral philosophy literature about abortion, right? Because there are arguments for and against that. Right. Okay. But but even if we have the arguments from, in the case of abortion, pro-life people and pro-choice people, for example, just to put those two camps on the table, uh, I mean, I, I imagine that there are several steps through which we have to go that the answers to which of them would be arbitrary. So, for example, let's say that uh, we have to determine at what point uh, a particular uh, form of life really becomes uh, life. So let's say, uh, does life start at conception? Does it start at a particular point in fetal development? Does it start after birth? Uh, I mean, even if, yeah. we, even if we look into the science of it, uh, determining that at a specific point life, life starts or not, it seems to me to be uh, a sort of arbitrary. I mean, it could be one way or the other. And then uh, even, we, even if we uh, agree on that, then that's, uh, there's another question that is, so life starts at this particular point, why is it good or bad to end a life at that particular point before or after that, or more generally, why is it good or bad to end a particular life? And so, I mean, do you understand what I'm saying here? Basically, yeah. I imagine well, that there are several steps we can follow and each of them, I mean, the, the answer that we give to each of them would be at least to some extent arbitrary. Um. So, I mean, first, like the question about ab abortion, the debate about abortion is not about when life begins, even though that's what almost everyone in popular discourse says. But that's not what the debate is about, because nobody thinks that fetuses aren't alive, right? That's retarded. I mean, <laughs> it's obviously alive. Like, you know, I look at a you know, talk to a biologist and ask them if that's like an inanimate matter or living. Anyway, okay. But there is a question of when it becomes a person, okay? So being alive doesn't make it a person. There are lots of living things that aren't people. Okay, so that's the question. Anyway, how, do, how would we determine whether it's a person or not? Uh, well, it's kind of hard, right? <laughs> so there are arguments about that. And then you're asking something like, well, uh, do all those arguments start from some arbitrary premise? Uh, no, not unless you think like almost everything is arbitrary, right? I mean, you know, it's not like the philosophers who give arguments about this just like pick some completely random statement and assert that and then start deducing things from it, right? Like they're not totally irrational. Um, when, you, when you read the arguments in moral philosophy, normally, and if you're a normal person, you see their point, right? They like they will start from some premise, but like most normal people will see the plausibility 
of the premise, right? Hmm. Okay, now, if you just totally don't see the plausibility of the premise, then, you know, nothing you can do, okay? Um, uh, now, also, does this mean that the issue has been resolved? No, it doesn't, because there are competing considerations, right? Like, this is why there's a debate. There are competing reasons on both sides. You know, none of the reasons, like, they're not arbitrary. Like, all the reasons have some force. It's just that they're balanced by other reasons, and you can have a disagreement about which is, uh, what are the strongest reasons, right? But, you know, that happens in all of philosophy and, like, much of life. So, you know, is that, like, this is not a, a weird thing about ethics. This is just a thing about life. Yeah, I'm not saying at all that it's a weird thing about ethics. I was just questioning if, I mean, the point that you made about uh, philosophers presenting different reasons and then debating them and deciding which of them has more weight or not and which of them are are stronger or not. I mean, it, it, couldn't it still be the case that then the only way we have to determine if something in the realm of ethics is good or bad is the result of debating and convincing people that it's good or bad? Um, I don't know, is that analytically true? I mean, the only thing we could do is debate and try to convince people of what's good or bad. That's true, right? But, you know, look, so um, this is an example. Um, I mean, you know, it, I, um, we, we maybe don't want to, you know, focus completely on abortion, but I'm, I'm going to give this sure. example anyway. You know, the famous yeah. violinist thought experiment. Okay, it's um, somebody has... Um, against your will, attached you, attached your body to that of a famous violinist. And um, you've been hooked up to him so that your kidneys can filter his blood or something. <laughs> okay. And uh, he has some disease where he has to have the blood filtered through your kidneys in order to survive. But after nine months, he'll be cured. So then you can detach yourself and, and he'll live. But if you detach yourself prematurely, then he'll die. Okay, so the question is, are you morally obligated to stay attached to the violinist? And then most people just have the intuitive reaction that, no, you do not have to stay attached to the violinist. And by the way, you know, including conservatives, right? People of both liberal and conservative views, most people think you would not have to stay attached to him. Right, and by the way, like, you know, especially like libertarians, right, would say, no way, no way do you have to do that for that violinist that you don't even know, right? Okay, so, um, and then that's supposed to be analogous to staying attached to the fetus, right? So, um, yeah, like there's, a, there's an intuition at the core of this, but what makes this not pointless is that the majority of people will see that intuition even if they didn't already agree with you about abortion. And then most people can also see how that's analogous to abortion, right? Right. But I mean, in this case, then morality would be based on uh, people's intuitions. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There, there's no way of getting around that, right? Um, that is, like, the moral conclusions that people draw are based upon their intuitions. And, uh, you know, what's, what's the problem with that? Okay, so, uh, but, uh, but then another question, where do those intuitions come from? Um, you know, just thinking about the question. 
right? Um, so you know you you understand the concepts of rights and you know um, moral obligation and whatever. And so you understand those things, and then you understand the scenario, and you think about the scenario, and you just see that, you know, for example, you have rights over your body. You will you will intuitively see that. That will be obvious to you, right? Um, you know, so let me give you examples of other intuitions that are not in ethics, right? So mm -hmm. um, if A is inside B and B is inside C, then A is inside C. So that's true, okay. Um, no object is completely green and also completely blue. Okay, also obvious, right? Okay, so, and you know, and then, you know, a bunch of like things in mathematics, like the shortest path between any two points is a straight line. <clears throat> okay, when you think about that, uh, so those, just, those things just become obvious to you when you think about them. So those are what philosophers call intuitions, right? Uh, something that just seems to you to be correct when you think about it, like when you reflect intellectually. Um, you know, people don't have that much of a problem with those things. Um, so there are philosophical questions about, you know, what's going on, but there's not much doubt that you know those things, right? And so, you know, if that's the case, then you know, try, try also just thinking about an ethical question and see whether you have an intuitive reaction like that. And uh, frequently you do. Right. But, but isn't it also the case when it comes to moral intuitions? For example, just to give an example, we have the work coming from Jonathan Haidt and colleagues where they talk about, for example, the differences in moral foundations between liberals, conservatives, libertarians, and so on. Uh, wouldn't that be one of the reasons why the fact that they differ in terms of their moral foundations, why they would have different intuitions when responding to different ethical questions or reacting to different responses to ethical questions? Um, yes. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, liberals and conservatives will have different ethical reactions to some degree. Um, of course, they have different political reactions, although, um, I mean, it's it's mostly because of irrationality. Uh, most people's political views are just not really rationally related to the rest of their belief system, and they're not really trying to be rational. Okay, but um, you know, note that as as Height says, everybody has all five of the foundations, right? right? So, like, it's not that radical of a difference. What it is is a difference in emphasis, right? Like, liberals will tend to emphasize the harm and emphasize the harm and fairness foundations and conservatives are more um, sort of like more even across all five of the foundations right so okay so there could be differences that you can't resolve because of that um, and you know because of other reasons but you know again that's just kind of like the way life is so you know too bad but but then for example when I asked you where these intuitions come from, taking into account that sort of psychological, sociological work, they would come from basically our evolution, right? The way people evolved, because, I mean, the, uh, this has to do with the fact that we were exposed to certain selective pressures during our evolutionary history, and that's why we evolved these different 
uh, as Jonathan Hyde calls them, uh, taste buds for ethics? Yeah, um, you know, I'm not sure what Hyde's view is about metaethics. I'm not sure if he's a realist or not. Um, okay, but I mean, let's see, was it, um, do we have intuitions because of evolution? So in a trivial sense, yes. And uh, in in, so compare the question. So I have the intuition that nothing can be completely green and also completely blue at the same time. Did I get that from evolution? So in a trivial sense, yes, because human beings were produced by evolution, by natural selection, and our mind and our brain was produced by evolution. So in that sense, yes. But uh, is there a gene that specifically selects for that belief? No, I don't think so. Like, that, right, that, that's way too specific. There is a gene that makes you capable of just like seeing obvious necessary truths or, you know, or well, I, I don't know if there's a gene about that, but anyway, um, there was selection pressure for you to be intelligent, which makes you able to see things like that. Um, okay, so then, you know, similarly, uh, was there a gene that made me think that harm is bad and care is good, right? Because that's like the foundation, the moral foundation that liberals emphasize more. Um, you know, only in the sense that our genes made us, you know, capable of understanding moral concepts, right? And so, and given that, the reason why most people think that harm is bad is that it's bad, right? And like, you know, what, what's the best explanation for why you think that a thing can't be completely red and completely blue at the same time? Um, well, that that's true. That's why you think that, right? And so, you know, that's that's what I think about ethical truths. Right? The main reason why we think most of the kind of like obvious, simple ethical truths is just because they're true. Right. Okay. But I, I don't know if this is simplifying the question or not. But for example, talking about colors, we evolved to perceive a certain array of colors like red and blue. And that's why we don't perceive them both at, at the same time and we are able to distinguish between them. Wouldn't it be the case that something like that happened when it comes to moral or ethical intuitions and so that's why we have these specific moral foundations, for example, and if we were to be exposed to other kinds of selective pressures, whatever they might have been, we would have evolved other moral foundations and so we would think about ethical questions in a different way i mean i'm not sure if this is too much of a stretch or not yeah i mean imagine somebody hypothesizing that if we were subject to different selective pressures then we would think that things can be uh, completely red and completely blue at the same time i, mm -hmm. I think i've changed the colors um, a couple of times anyway so, okay yeah we would have thought things could be red and blue at the same time. Uh, I mean, I have no idea what that's supposed to be like, right? Like, right. what does an object look like if it looks completely red and completely blue? Like, that doesn't make sense. Okay. Um, so, like, I'm highly skeptical that there could have been selective pressures that would, would have made us think that. Maybe there could have been selective pressures that would have made us insane 
or irrational or something. So like maybe then we could have thought those things. And that's kind of what I think about some of the ethical truths, right? Uh, so like, um, that's what I think about the idea that harm could be good, right? Like, could there have been selective pressures that made us think that harm was good? Well, only if they made us crazy or irrational or something, okay? However, I do think there are some, um, there are some ethical beliefs that are more closely tied to selective pressures. Okay. Right? And these, these are typically things that have to do with reproduction in an obvious way. So like people think that, um, you know, like they have special obligations to their kin, like their family members, especially their children, that they don't have to anyone else. Why is that? And when you think about it, that's kind of weird. Like, um, hmm, being genetically related to somebody makes it so that you have to help them more than people you're not genetically related to. That's weird. Why is that? And then there's just like this totally obvious evolutionary explanation. When you think about it just intellectually, it's weird. But when you think in terms of evolution, it seems kind of like obvious why that would be there. Okay, but then what you realize is that, you know, maybe that belief is wrong, right? Maybe you're not really obligated to the people who are genetically related to you or whatever. Although I, I guess that's not exactly what the intuition is anyway, that they're genetically related to you because whatever, you know, in our evolutionary past, people didn't know that there were such things as genes, so. But they're in your family. Yeah, right. So uh, that wouldn't be an intuition, of course, that's something, I mean, that's a subconscious computation that our brain does and we don't really have uh, conscious access to it. But uh, could you give us then an example of uh, an ethical intuition that people have and perhaps try to explain to us what's uh, an intuition? I mean, does it necessarily have to be something that's rational or something that people think about or or could it be something subconscious um well can there be a subconscious intuition like i think i think an intuition is a kind of experience um mm. could there be which you know i guess has to be conscious um could there be subconscious causes of it uh yes um other examples of intuitions, um, uh, pain is bad, you know, pleasure is good, um, you shouldn't, or, you know, or, you know, maybe better, pain is other things being equal a harm, and enjoyment is a benefit. Also, you shouldn't cause harms for no good reason, and it it's good to cause benefits. Okay. <laughs> um, if uh, if A is better than B and B is better than C, then A is better than C. Like very common ethical intuition there. Okay, so um, you know there are a bunch of examples like that. Um, if you can produce a benefit for someone without making anybody worse off, then that's typically a good thing to do. Right. Now, so you know mo many of these are sort of ceteris paribus, like you know unless you have a reason otherwise, right? Like produce the benefit unless there's a reason not to, and don't produce harms unless there's some pretty good reason to do it. But yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I, I was just going to ask you. So ethical intuitionism is it something that stands in contrast with uh, ethical theories, like for example, 
deontology, consequentialism, virtue, virtue ethics, or is that something that could be, I mean, could have some sort of relationship with them? Um, so it's not in conflict with those. So, okay. you know, you want to distinguish ordinary ethical theories from meta-ethical theories. So intuitionism tells you something about the nature of ethics and like, you know, what we're doing when we say things are right or wrong and things like that. Uh, it doesn't tell you directly what is right or wrong. Um, that's the job of ethical theory. There have been, you know, deontological intuitionists and at least some consequentialist intuitionists. So Henry Sidgwick was a utilitarian intuitionist famously. And then you have deontologists like uh, W.D. Ross. So um, G.E. Moore was a consequentialist, but not a utilitarian. So, um, and I don't know, I assume there, I assume there's some virtue ethicist who is an intuitionist probably, um, right? And so, and you know, in any of these cases, um, the philosopher would try to base their ethical theory on you know, their intuitions, which is not so hard to do because like there is some intuitive force behind all of the major ethical theories, right? Like there, there's a reason why it seems plausible to people. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, would you say that, for example, of course, we can have people who are uh, consequential intuitionists, deontological intuitionists and so on. But do you think that uh, it could be plausible for people to apply uh, different ethical perspectives to different ethical questions and still be uh, plausible or logic? I mean, so for example, evaluate one question through a consequentialist lens, another question through a deontological lens and so on. Um, so I guess, yes. I mean, so the, like the way they're standardly defined, consequentialism and deontology are incompatible by definition. Right. Um, because, you know, deontological ethics just means non-consequentialist ethics. Okay. But deontologists, like deontologists are, most of them, I should say, are not completely insane. Uh, so they don't think that, oh, the consequences of your action don't matter at all. Like nobody thinks that except insane people like Immanuel Kant. Okay, so, um, uh, so like, like a deontologist will sometimes be doing, quote, consequentialist reasoning. That is, he'll be taking account of the consequences, and sometimes that will be decisive to what ought to be done. Like, if there's an action where nobody's rights are at stake, then, you know, you can decide that based upon the consequences, right? Uh, right, so like in that sense, yes. Uh, you can apply deontological and consequentialist approaches to different questions, although the consequentialist would deny this, right? Because the consequentialists are extremists. That is, they think only consequences matter. There's never, there's never like a side constraint or whatever. Right. So, uh, and what is your position on moral nihilism? Do you think... Uh, I mean, I would assume that you are not fond of moral nihilism. What, what do you think are some of the biggest issues with it? Uh, I mean, there's only one major issue with it, right? Which is, you know, being completely insane, right? <laughs> now, so that's a technical term there. So let me explain. Like, the nihilist just has like a maximally implausible view about ethics, right? That is, um, okay, so like there are some arguments for nihilism, and uh, they will give, um, they'll, they'll 
give arguments that are something like this. So like this is inspired by Mackey. Um, if they were to be objective values, then um, they would have to be things such that they automatically motivate you to act regardless of your desires. Okay, that's first premise. Second premise, nothing motivates action independent of desires. So conclusion, there can't be any objective values. Okay, and then there's another premise. Um, when people make moral statements, they are making assertions about objective values. So conclusion, all moral statements are false, right? They're like, so, you know, murder is wrong is a, is a claim that there's an objective wrongness property or something um, that applies to murder. And there aren't any objective wrongness properties, so murder isn't wrong. Okay, so now what I say about this is, well, so like the premises of this argument are not like completely crazy, like there's some plausibility to those premises, but um, they're way less plausible than the, the denial of the conclusion, right? Like the conclusion, it's not the case that murder is wrong. Like that's so implausible, that's way more implausible than denying one of the premises of that argument, right? And like the premises of that argument are nowhere near certain enough to justify me in taking such a completely radical conclusion, right? And so, you know, like, um, if you think this, um, like, okay, so I have no reason not to go out and like torture some babies, like no reason not to do that. Like that would be perfectly, right? That'd be just as good, which is to say it would have no goodness or badness whatsoever because nothing does, <laughs> you know, just as good as if I were to go out and like, you know, um, donate money to charity to save 10 lives. That's just as good as murdering 10 babies, um, right? Like that's so absurd that you know, you would just, in order to justify that, you would have to have some premises that are just completely obviously true and undeniable. And they don't, right? Like in that example that I gave, like that's, the premises are not obvious at all, right? There, there are things that, you know, that anti-realists frequently say that sort of seem vaguely plausible, at least to them, right? But they're definitely not obvious, so. Like, it's not obvious that for there to be an objective value, it has to automatically motivate action independent of desires, right? Like, in fact, I don't think that I've ever seen anyone other than anti-realists say that. Right? Like, that, I, don't, I don't think that that's part of, like, normal moral discourse. I don't think, like, that's part of the views of moral realists. They automatically, right? I, maybe some moral realists, right? but like that's nowhere near to being universally accepted even among people who believe in objective values, right? So like their their view about what objective values would be is like highly questionable. Wait, that's not the only argument that they have, but all of them are kind of like that, right? The premises are like vaguely plausible at most, not completely obvious as they, as they ought to be, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, since you mentioned desire, uh, I'm going to quote you now, this comes from your book Ethical Intuitionism, just for you to explain this quote here. Um, rational moral judgments weigh self-interest among other factors, just as rational prudential judgments weigh present inclination among other factors. Consequently, morality takes precedence over prudence, and prudence takes precedence over current desire. So, uh, could you explain this relationship between morality, prudence, and current desire? Yeah, I mean, so, if you, if you want to do something right now, that gives you a reason for doing it. That's the reason for doing it. It will satisfy a desire. 
Okay, but sometimes you have to um, overrule your current desires for the sake of the long-term good. You know, like um, when you feel like partying at night, but you have a test tomorrow, so you have to study instead. So you're like, I don't want to study, but I have to, I have to do it anyway. <laughs> okay, so like I give that example because I assume that it's relatable to my students. Um, okay, and then, uh, and you know, why is that? So it's rational to go ahead and study anyway, even though you don't want to do it right now. So like you're not following your strong, your currently strongest desire. Um, why is that rational? Well, because like the, the prudential judgment already takes into account the strength of the current desire. So like what happens is you judge how good it's going to be to satisfy this current desire. And then you compare that to how good it's going to be to satisfy your desire that you're going to have tomorrow to be doing well on the test. And then you, you sort of like when you weigh these desires against each other, you see that the desire to do well on the test is more important. And so you judge that that's what you, that you should study for the test now, even though you still don't want that right now. Okay, um, so I claim there's something similar with morality you know, and its relation to prudential, whatever, prudence. Um, when you make a moral judgment, a, like a properly made moral judgment should take into account your self-interest, right? So like I'm not an ethical egoist, I don't think it should only take into account your self-interest, but it should take into account the self-interest among other things. Okay, so, and then you see this if you think about some, um, you know, just think about some examples. So there's the famous example where there's like a child dr drowning in a pond and you can wade into the pond and save the child and that will cause you to get your clothes wet and then you'll like miss your philosophy lecture or something. Okay, so when you think about that, you're like, hmm, yeah, drowning is way worse than missing your philosophy lecture and getting your clothes wet. <laughs> so when you think about it, you're like, yeah, I think I have to pull the child out. Um, Okay, but that would not be the case if you, if you had stronger interests at stake, right? So imagine the example is a little bit different, and it's like a um, you know dangerous river, and you don't know how to swim. Okay, so you could go into the river, and you know there's some there's some significant chance that you drown, but also a good chance that you succeed and save the child. Now, do you have to jump into the river and save the child? No, right? And so, and this is not just my assertion, right? Like I think that that's the intuitive reaction of most people. And notice that that's a moral judgment, right? That's not just a prudential judgment. Like I'm not just saying, oh, it's not in your interest. I'm saying like, are you morally required? No, and like you would make the same judgment about other people. Like you saw somebody else who could have saved the drowning child and they didn't do it. And they explained that, well, there was a significant risk of drowning because they don't know how to swim. And then you would judge about that other person. Oh well, I guess that's permissible then, right? Uh, you didn't have to. You didn't have to jump in. Okay. So what that shows is that, like normal moral judgments, if you're doing it properly, already take into account how how important your interest is, right? And so like that's why the more the moral judgment gives you what you ought to do, all things considered, right? So like you shouldn't then weigh the moral judgment against your self-interest because the moral judgment already considered your self-interest. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, I've asked you about moral nihilism. Uh, what do you think about moral relativism? Because I, I think that's not an anti-realist position, right? Um, so I classify that as an anti-realist position. Oh, so, also, okay. Yeah, so like realist views hold that there are objective values, something like that, and anti-realist views think there aren't any, right? So there are three versions of anti-realism. If you don't think there are objective values, you could think um, A, uh, value judgments are always false, it's a nihilist position, or B, um, they're neither true nor false, this is the non-cognitivist position, or C, okay, they're sometimes true, but they depend upon the attitudes of observers. Right. The truth of the, a moral judgment depends on observers' attitudes. So that's the subjectivist and or relativist position. Okay. And, you know, what I think about that, um, false, right? So, uh, so, you know, I suggested earlier in this discussion, um, you could get, you can just consider examples like, well, what if there's a society that uh, approves of torturing babies? Okay, so true or false, if you live in such a society, you should torture babies. I think that's false, right? You shouldn't torture babies even if your society approves of it, right? Still wrong. So, you know, it looks like it's not relative, right? Like the relativist view would be, um, you know, basically right and wrong depends on the attitudes of society. Like something's right if society approves of it, right? But it seems false. And of course, there are like many examples in history that you give, right? So if you live in Nazi Germany, so true or false, if you lived in Nazi Germany, you should help them round up the Jews to send them to concentration camps. So like, so that's false, right? If you watch the movie Schindler's List, you know, where Oscar Schindler was trying to save Jews and did save, I don't know, I guess maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of Jews. Anyway, he saved a bunch of Jews who were working in his factory from being sent to the concentration camps and as a result, saved their lives. Um, people at the, people didn't know at that time what was going to happen at the end, but at the end, you know, a bunch like millions were killed, right? So he saved um, a bunch of his workers' lives by keeping them out of the concentration camps. Okay, uh, but he was going against the norms of his society, right? So if you watch Oscar Schindler, um, do you think he was the hero or the villain of that movie? <laughs> uh, he was the hero of the movie, right? He's not he's not a villain. <laughs> Right, but like that's what the relativist view would imply, right? Because they say, oh, right, right and wrong is determined by the the norms of your society. So he was going against the norms of his society, so he was a bad guy, right? Well, that's crazy, right? Like that's the most crazy moral error that that any moral theory could make. Okay, so uh, per perhaps let me just uh, explore an example. To, uh, of course, this will probably not change uh, your overall view of moral relativism, but uh, let's let's say, for example, let's talk about infanticide. So it's considered wrong in our modern industrialized societies, but talking about more small-scale hunter-gatherer societies, where in certain situations, particularly from an evolutionary perspective, there might uh, there might be a rationale for killing children in particular circumstances. Like, for example, if a woman bears too many children and then there's not enough resources to sustain all of them, perhaps it would be better for the woman to, on those conditions, to sacrifice one or two, whatever the number might be of their, 
of her children for the rest to survive and if she didn't do that then I mean assuming that's the case that all the children would die so would that be a case of moral relativism or not um no so well so yeah you might think oh so if you ask somebody in our society hey is it okay to kill your kids <laughs> almost everyone will say no and then if you ask you go to that society and then you ask hey is it okay to kill one of these kids and they go yeah that's what we have to do um so so oh so there's a moral difference between our two societies i mean if you put it like that it sounds like it but if you if you ask the person in our society if you filled them in on the details of the actual situation like i think a large number of people would say oh well then um, that's permissible, right? Because that's what what you have to do, right? And I've, in fact, I think um, so. Like that, that doesn't happen in our society because we have you know lots of food, right? But um, there are like there are cases that are kind of analogous to that. Um, so like people could be in an emergency situation where. Um, you know, somebody has to be sacrificed. Okay. So like, so here's a story, like there's a bunch of people who are on a life raft and actually the life raft is about to sink um, because there's too many people on it. So what can you do? And so uh, you have to throw somebody overboard. Right. And then you can have a debate about like how you choose the person to throw overboard, whatever, like maybe you draw a lot or like maybe you throw the heaviest person or whatever. But anyway, like somebody's got to be thrown overboard. OK. And if, if you ask people out of context, is it OK to throw somebody off a life raft, causing them to drown? They would say no. But if you fill in the details and it's like, well, otherwise they're all going to drown, then I think almost everyone would say yes. Right. Like, that's what you have to do. Um, so, like, it, I don't think that really shows a difference in values fundamentally between our society and other societies. Right? And I'm not saying that there aren't differences in values. There are, but I don't think that that's, like, um, really an example of it. Well, I mean, and perhaps even in this case, I don't know, perhaps if you asked people that were part of those more small-scale intergatherer societies if it's right or wrong to kill children just that question straight away probably they would also say no i would imagine and <laughs> yeah. perhaps would say yes according to those specific circumstances i described yeah 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 like you know it's not like people in other societies uh didn't value their children like you're not going to find a society in which they just wanted to kill their kids for for the heck of it right just like just harming them for no reason um that wouldn't happen uh now i so i think that the, you could come up with cases that are like better illustrations of having different values so okay. something like um well can you kill the kid because it's severely disabled right so like i think they did do that in ancient Roman society, severely disabled. So it's not a threat to everybody else, but it's mm -hmm. just going to be like using up resources and it's going to have not such a great life because it's disabled. Right. And so um, what I heard is that in ancient Rome, they would kill the, they would kill that kid. Uh, and then today we think that that's horrible. So like that does look like a difference in values. Um, and, you know, you know, a bunch of other differences in values, right? They were also like forcing people to fight to the death 
right, for entertainment of other people. <laughs> so I guess they thought that was cool and funny, right? Um, so funny to see the people like struggling for their lives and getting limbs chopped off and so on. Okay, so actually they had different values in those respects, but um, so what? So that just shows that they were wrong. <laughs> that's, that's the way it looks to me, like it shows, shows that people in ancient Rome were uh, primitive, more primitive than us today. Okay, so uh, do you think that moral questions can be studied and answered by science? Well, uh, sort of yes, sort of no, right? Like, so science can contribute something, it can't do the whole thing, let's say, right? So, yeah, I know this is a thing that Sam Harris says, that, like, we can use science to find out the moral truth. Uh, so, yes, you can do that if you make a bunch of moral assumptions. So, like, if you assume utilitarianism is true, then you can scientifically investigate what causes happiness, like in, you know, like psychology. And then you can do, like, social science studies also to figure out what, you know, the effects on... Um, the effects of different policies on social conditions and, and thus indirectly on people's happiness and so on. Um, so yes, but then science is not going to tell you whether utilitarianism is true. Like, right, like this is such an obvious thing that I can't believe Sam Harris hasn't thought of it. Although maybe he, he, he has, and right, because I haven't listened to everything he has to say. <clears throat> um, maybe he has an answer to that. But so obviously, like, yeah, you can do empirical investigation to find out whether X causes happiness. You can't do empirical investigation to find out whether happiness is good or bad. You just have to understand that intellectually. You just have to like understand what happiness is and like intuitively see that it's good. Yeah, it's interesting because since you mentioned some areas, I don't think he considered uh, the philosophical side of things that well, because even in the um, note in his book, The Moral Landscape, he says basically that things like, uh, or words like consequentialism, deontology, intuitionism, blah, 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 I mean, <laughs> that they just bore himself. So, I, 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 mean, I, I mean, he basically makes the assumption that if through neuroscience we are able to understand what uh, what are the sort of things that produce pleasure and produce pain that from that we can derive, I mean, what's good and what's bad without any sort yeah. of philosophical theory in between, let's say. Yeah, you know, it's not, it's not such a good sign if you're writing a book about ethics and you're bored by like the main terminology used in ethics, right? <laughs> like, uh, that's, that's bad. <clears throat> anyway, yeah, um, so, yeah, I mean, it just sounds like, oh, well, he's assuming utilitarianism or something like that, um, which is a, you know, it's a common ethical view, right? But it's not like, um, it's not self-evident, so like it has to be defended, and the defense is not going to be just appealing to neuroscience, right? Like, like some, so some people are going to say, well, like there could be stuff that causes pleasure and happiness and whatever, and is still bad, right? Like, um, Okay, so, you know, what if there's some person who, like, really loves watching child pornography, right? It's, like, super fun for him. Okay, like, and, like, you know, we only have to exploit, like, a few children in order to produce um, videos that will give pleasure to all the pedophiles in the world. And there's, like, lots of pedophiles, right? So it's going to produce more pleasure. So is that what we should do? And, you know, okay, let's, let's go talk to the neuroscientists and, like, just 
what? What are the neuroscientists going to tell us? Like they're going to confirm that it really is causing pleasure for the pedophiles? So like, okay, that doesn't really resolve the moral question, right? Right. And do you think that, uh, uh, what do you think about the, the so-called is-ought gap? Of course, perhaps this also has something to do with, for example, the position espoused by some Harrys, but do you think that it's in any way possible to derive moral values directly from facts or scientific facts? Um, so, um, yes and no. Yes, if you're allowed to have intuitions, and no, if you're not. Right? <laughs> right, so, like, you can think about the scientifically established descriptive facts, and then you can have an intuition that something is right, wrong, good or bad. Uh, if you don't accept intuition, then no, you can't do, can't do anything. <laughs> if you don't accept moral intuition, then you can't get to um, values just from descriptive facts, right? I.e., um, there's no form of inference that's accepted in other contexts that's valid or cogent that gets you from purely descriptive premises to an evaluative conclusion. Right. So like you could you could make up a new form of inference and <laughs> where you say, OK, like, um, you know, X cause pain without producing any other benefit or whatever. Therefore, X is bad. And you could say, oh, that's a valid form of inference. Right. Um, OK, but that's that doesn't follow any recognized pattern of inference, you know, out that works outside of ethics. Right. Like that's not a that's not like if you go and take a formal logic class like that inference will not be in there, right? <laughs> yeah. So like you would have to make up inferences that are specifically ethical inferences, right? And there's a, and then how would you know that those are valid inferences or cogent inferences? And then well, it would just have to be like you have an ethical intuition. Yeah, yeah, I understand. So uh, let's now talk about veganism then. Uh, so uh, do you have a set of criteria that you follow to determine that a particular species is worthy of moral consideration? Well, the, um, I, mean, I guess the criterion is, oh, it's worthy of moral consideration if it has interests or something like that. But, um, but I think, well, basically, I think it has to be capable of um, pleasure or pain, enjoyment or suffering. Um, why? Because, well, I think if you're incapable of enjoyment or suffering, then it's like there's nothing that I can do to you that's really bad, right? Um, then I was thinking if there are any exceptions to this. Uh, but I, yeah, I don't think there are any real world exceptions. There might be hypothetical exceptions. I don't think there are any real world exceptions where you have interest despite being not capable of enjoyment or suffering. Um, now, if you ask, okay, well, how do I know if, if something is capable of enjoyment or suffering? Okay, that's often hard to tell. Uh, but I think like a, a requirement is that you have a brain. Because as, as far as we know, you know, ex experiences are caused by activity in your brain. So, like plants don't have experiences because they don't have a brain, right? That would be my inference. Uh, also, you know, like clams and oysters don't have a brain. So I infer that they don't have experiences and they don't have enjoyment or suffering. So, you know, you know, do whatever you want to the clam, right? 
but uh, we would go about that through what uh, so through behavioral analysis and comparative neuroscience to determine if for example even when it comes to the species who have brains i mean to determine that they suffer or they experience pain or pleasure uh, we would go about it through comparative neuroscience uh, i guess that and sort of behavioral study Right. So, I mean, there are, so having a brain is only a necessary condition. I take it to be necessary for having enjoyment or suffering. So, uh, or as I say, sentience, it's necessary for sentience, but it's not sufficient. So that you could have a brain and conceivably still not be sentient. Uh, how would we determine? Well, so that there is actually literature on this, right? Where people try to figure out whether um, insects are sentient or things like this. Um, so one thing is looking at behavior um and you know another thing is just looking at physiology so like does it have the kind of nerve endings in it that the, sti the stimulation of which causes pain in you nociceptors as they as they say mm -hmm. uh, if it doesn't then you know you infer it probably is incapable of pain right and then the behavioral study is something like well if it's experiencing something where you would be in pain if that happened to you will it behave in a way that's similar to how you and like the other um, higher animals behave, right? So like if the if the insect's leg is damaged, will it uh, will it limp, you know, like you would or try to protect protect the limb from getting whatever getting contacted by other things? And, and in fact, the answer to that is no. Like insects will just like rest the same weight on an injured leg. Like they'll walk just as if it wasn't injured. Um, or, you know, like uh, if there's a severe injury, will that prevent it from doing other things? So like if the lower half of your body was completely smashed, you would not carry on with your day. <laughs> you, would not, you would not carry on with whatever else you were doing. <laughs> like you wouldn't just like, you know, keep eating your cereal or whatever. Um, but uh, there are cases where insects will do that. Like lower half of the body is just completely smashed and then it keeps eating or keeps mating or whatever, whatever is going on, right? Whatever it was doing. Right, so that suggests not having pain. But do you think that there's some sort of, let's call it moral scale in the animal kingdom? So, for example, uh, let's say that some animals are capable of experiencing pain, but then uh, there we get into the social animals and they also have more complex emotions, more complex social lives, social relationships. Do you think that those would be criteria that would add moral worth to animals, to the social animals in that case, com in comparison to the more simpler animals? Or are those criteria that, I mean, are not that relevant for you and the way we should treat uh, one set of animals versus the other would, would be the same? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, so the, your, you know, your first question was um, about the criterion for moral consideration, and then right. I cited sentience. Um, so that's just a necessary condition. Um, well, I guess it's necessary and sufficient. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's the only morally relevant um, condition, right? Uh, it's just the condition for deserving some moral consideration. 
Um, so like, I think there are other things that matter, although I wouldn't say having social relationships is relevant to your moral status. So if there's mm -hmm. like some hermit who's living out in the woods totally by himself, he doesn't have any social relationships, I would not say that he has fewer rights than the rest of us. Um, but, you know, I would say that there are, there are characteristics of human beings that kind of make our lives more sophisticated and of greater value. So like a typical human life is more valuable than a typical non-human animal life, right? And that's, you know, well, it's largely because of our intelligence and because of our intelligence, we're capable of um, more valuable kinds of activities that, you know, other creatures are not capable of. So um, the other creatures are never going to understand the world in the way that um, an intelligent human can understand it. So they're not going to be able to like pursue whatever philosophical understanding, which as we all know is super important. Um, but also like, yeah, they won't be able to have like, um, they won't be able to have kinds of like impressive achievements, right? And the, there's just like so many things that depend upon having a certain level of intelligence, right? So like, um, you know, the animal is not going to be able to plan to be the world's greatest at something, right? Or like, you know, do a really great thing for the world. Like, that's not going to happen. But if those are also criteria, what about humans who, for example, suffer some, from a, some form of brain damage and are, and are not able to have those sorts of uh, experiences or to appreciate certain things that are part of normal human life. Yeah. Yeah, so you could have severely mentally disabled humans who have capacities similar to non-human animals, right? And so then I would say, well, then they have a moral status that's similar to the non-human animals, right? Which means, um, well, you, so you still shouldn't abuse them, like you shouldn't abuse the animals either. Um, but, uh, but, you know, they don't have all the same rights that the rest of us have, mm -hmm. right? So, um, so like if you can um, either kill a mentally disabled person or kill a um, non-disabled person, right? Well, you know, you have to kill the disabled person, which is, so, you know, like you're driving a car and you, know, you have to run over one of them. <laughs> These are horrific examples, but anyway, uh, yeah, I guess you run over um, the mentally disabled person as you would if it was a non-human animal, right? Do you think that uh, from a philosophical perspective, we should consider that other species, particularly, for example, the great apes uh, also have morality? Because if you talk with primatologists like Franz de Vol, for example, I mean, the way they talk about uh, the sort of social relationships that they establish with one another, how they behave toward one another and so on, it seems that they have some form of morality, but does it make sense to talk about morality in non-human animals from a philosophical perspective? Uh, so it makes sense whether it's correct or not is you know, open to debate, right? So like, I mean, some of the things that look like morality might be um, kind of enlightened self-interest. So like um, kind of a reciprocal altruism behavior, like one animal does a benefit for the second one, the second one does a benefit for the first. Um, that might just be enlightened self-interest, so to speak, um, and, you know, it pursued instinctively, 
Okay, but I mean, I think there are things that look like morality where um, it's, you know, an animal helping another animal that couldn't be expected to help it back. Uh, so you occasionally see things like this. So like you can you can find um, videos on YouTube of stuff like this, like, um, you know, a bunch of bunch of animals um, save another animal. Okay, so like there was one video where um, there's a like a child wildebeest that is being attacked by alligators in a pond or something. And then these hippos come over and actually save the wildebeest. Like they come over and chase the alligator away and then the wildebeest gets out. And it's like, wow, what's going on here? Like there's no explanation other than that they were trying to help that other animal. And the other animal is not like this, like baby wildebeest is not gonna help out the hippos, right? So, you know, it's not self-interest. So it looks like they had some, you know, kind of like basic moral understanding, right? Mm -hmm. But, but uh, I mean, in that sense, we have to be careful about uh, anthropomorphism, right? Because sometimes we could be projecting some of our mental experiences in terms of morality, for example, and how we think about moral questions to other animals. But I mean, e even, even if other animals do not uh, think in moral terms as we do, does that really matter when it comes to uh, animal rights and uh, animal ethics. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I mean, to, you know, to your first point, it is easy to anthropomorphize, right? It's easy to, to mistakenly assume the animal is thinking or feeling what you would be feeling, which right. usually it isn't, right? Usually it's thinking something more basic. Um, but, you know, I gave that example because it's hard to think of another interpretation of, of what they're doing uh, other than trying to be helpful. Um, Okay, but anyway, but you know, I, like this stuff is not happening all the time. Like that's a remarkable video because that doesn't usually happen. <laughs> okay, so most of the time uh, other animals do not appear to be behaving morally, right? Although just to be clear, most of the time humans are not behaving so great either. So <laughs> um, anyway, okay, so does that, like does that affect their moral status? Um, um, I, I don't know, I mean, so they're not behaving morally doesn't mean that you can behave immorally towards them, right? Like, I'm sure of that. All right, so like, I know that uh, newborn babies don't have a sense of morality. That does not mean that I can torture them, right? Like, <laughs> that doesn't mean that, you know, all bets are off, like I have no moral obligations to them. Um, so some severely uh, mentally retarded people might not have an understanding of morality. So that doesn't mean that I can torture them. Uh, I'm pretty sure that psychopaths have no understanding of morality. Okay. And that does mean that we should hold them captive somewhere, right? Like in a prison or in a mental institution or whatever, but that does not mean that, you know, we have no obligations. Like we could just do whatever we want. Right. Like, you, you know, you can't just torture the psychopaths for fun because you don't like them because they don't have a sense of morality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's those human examples, but I, I asked you that question specifically because there are people, particularly when it comes to the question of animal rights, if, if animals should have rights or not, that they object by saying that uh, we shouldn't extend uh, rights to um, to beings that are, are do not have obligations and are not able to understand yeah. morality. 
Yeah, good. So, I mean, um, many people say this as if this was like a super compelling, obvious argument, right? <laughs> but I don't find that obvious at all. So, okay, so you've got this newborn baby. It doesn't have any obligations, right? So does that mean it has no rights? Okay, so, I mean, so I take it that not having rights doesn't mean all bets are off. Like, it doesn't mean that you can kill it for fun, but it would mean sort of like the deontological logic doesn't apply, right? So it would mean that you can kill it if you can save like a larger number, right? But you can inflict a harm on the one in order to produce a slightly larger benefit for someone else. So do we think that? So like, that's not obvious to me. Like, so I don't think that's an absurd position, but I don't think it's obvious either, right? And like, I don't think that they're not having obligations is um, like, that doesn't, that doesn't seem like a decisive consideration. So the baby doesn't have obligations. So therefore we can sacrifice one baby to save two babies. Like, I'm not sure that's true at all. That doesn't seem so compelling. Um, and so if that's not compelling, I like, it's not, it's not um, compelling in the case of non-human animals either. Right, but uh, I mean, even if we extend our moral circle, let's call it that, to include other sentient beings, um, does that entail directly or, um, yes, directly that we should grant them rights? Because that's more of a, uh, let's say, legal concept, right? Uh, I mean, there's, there is a legal concept of legal rights, but there's also a purely moral philosophy concept of moral rights, right? Which are distinct from the legal rights. Um, if we give moral consideration to animals, it does not follow that we have to grant them rights. Doesn't doesn't follow that they have rights or that we should think that they have rights. Um, but, you know, but do they have rights? Uh, hard to say because we don't actually know why people have rights, right? Like there are theories about why people have rights, but none of them is so compelling, right? And like if, if you have a theory about why people have rights, you should not be totally convinced of that theory, right? Because what you should realize is that there are lots of smart moral philosophers who disagree with it. They have an incompatible theory. Some people think that people don't even have rights at all. And then, so, okay. So because we don't really know why people have rights, if, assuming they do, um, we also don't know whether that extends to non-human animals. Uh, I think though that, I mean, whatever you say about non-human animals should be the same as what you say about uh, newborn babies because they're very similar right they have like actually you know a, adult animals are typically smarter than human babies um so you know like like most arguments that you could give hold on a second most arguments that you could give about how the non-human animals are different would also apply to the um, the newborn babies, right? And also mentally disabled people, right? So like whatever you say about one, you should say about the other, but it's not clear what you should say about either, right? Like I think that's not obvious. Um, if you, you know, if you think that they might have rights, then you should probably like err on the side of caution by not doing the things that would be rights violations. Right. But, but I mean, even if there's all those questions surrounding rights, human rights, animal rights, and so on, uh, there should still be, because of the ethical considerations we've been talking about concerning other animals, there should still be legislation to protect them. Yes. Well, um, yeah, is that like a justified use of legislation? I would say yes. Um, 
I mean, you have to think about like, okay, like, well, what should the legislation be? So uh, I feel fine about um, laws that laws against animal cruelty, right? Which we have, um, but they're not that strong, right? So like, uh, okay, if you seriously abuse your pet, then you could get in trouble for that. Although you won't get in all that much trouble. Like, you know, not like if you had abused a person, okay. But if you, you know, horrifically abuse your livestock animal, like, you know, if you do the same thing that would have gotten you thrown in jail briefly if you did it to a dog, but you do it to a pig instead, then, oh, that's fine. <laughs> like, you know, that's legally just, that's completely legal because, you know, they torture pigs all the time because it's accepted practice. Um, right. So like I would, um, I would extend the law so that you can't do the stuff to the livestock that like you can't, you can't do things to them that would be considered torture if you did them to a human being. Like there should be such a law. Um, should be, should there be a law that you can't eat meat at all? Well, not in this society because that would just not work, right? Like in the way that the drug laws don't work and they actually make things worse. Right. Like, so if you try to make a law against something that virtually everyone is doing, that usually doesn't work and like actually backfires, like makes things worse. Right. But, but I think that if there were more sort of animal welfare laws about like not torturing the animals on the farm and treating them humanely, I don't think that would backfire. Cause like, I think most people would be okay with that. Like most people would agree with those laws. But even if you think that uh, it shouldn't be legal for people to eat meat, do you think that because of the kinds of suffering uh, animals are put through in the meat industry, for example, do you think that that should be illegal? Um, wait, sorry. Do I think what should be illegal? Uh, the meat industry. Be the because, of the, because of the kinds of suffering animals are put through there. Um, so we should try to eliminate it eventually, right? I think the first step would be to have laws that require humane treatment. So that would make it illegal to do what they are currently doing, but it wouldn't make the entire industry illegal. They would have to change their practices to be more humane. Like, I think that would be the first step to make. I think the ultimate goal at the end should be, you know, to replace the whole, uh, animal agriculture industry. But I don't think that's feasible right now. I don't think like we should attempt to do that right now, but I think we should attempt to eventually do that, right? What's actually going to happen is we're going to replace it with um, cultured meat, right? Lab-grown meat that doesn't require an actual animal. I think that will actually happen because, um, you know, ultimately it's going to be cheaper and better, right? And more efficient, right? And so I think that like at a future point at which we have that on the market and it's commercially viable and it's like a better alternative, um, it's going to it's going to push out most of the meat consumption, and after that happens, I think it'll or like most of the quote real meat consumption will push push out most of the animal agriculture, and after that happens, then I think it'll be feasible for the government to ban the rest right that's remaining, because what's going to happen is there are going to be some people who are like, well, I just feel like I want to eat an animal, like even though the lab grown meat is chemically identical <laughs> even though it's the same material some people are going to be like yeah but it you know it didn't come from killing an animal i really want the thing 
that is just like this, except it came from killing an animal. There are going to be a few people who are like that because they're completely amoral. And then, but I assume that it won't be most people, right? So then at that point, I think it would be okay to ban the rest of the industry, right? Like um, to eliminate the small amount of people who are still um, killing animals for no good reason. Uh, do, do you think that there could be any compelling arguments against eating lab-grown meat? Because, for example, I, I'm not sure if this is something that you find among uh, mainstream philosophers or not, but I've heard people saying that, for example, it could be problematic to eat lab-grown meat because, I, I mean, it could uh, people could still acquire the taste of meat and that could compel them to try to consume the real meat. I don't know, it's, it sounds like a sort of <laughs> purist argument where people say that we should simply not eat meat at all, regardless of if any animal is suffering or not. But what do uh -huh. you think about it? You mean like the lab-grown meat could be like a gateway? <laughs> yeah, a gateway <laughs> drug to the... <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that seems false, right? So. You know, first of all, almost everyone is already eating the animal-made meat. So, like, you know, the worry that we're going to cause people to start doing that doesn't make much sense, right? It's the other way, right? Also, um, it's probably going to be better, right? In Well, better in what way? Well, like, whatever consumers want. It's probably going to be better because... Um, if you can grow it in a lab, then you can sort of control its characteristics. So it's probably going to be cheaper eventually. Right now it's more expensive, but it's going to be cheaper eventually because in principle you're using a lot less energy. Like in principle there's less resources going into it because in traditional agriculture you make the entire animal and then you cut off the meat and then throw away the other parts, right? So like in principle you're wasting a bunch of stuff. And, you know, there's like the time that it takes to make this. With the lab-grown meat, you only make the part that you want. So, like, it's more efficient in principle, which means eventually, like, when we perfect the technology, it's going to be cheaper. Also, they're going to, they're probably going to optimize it for whatever consumers want. So, like, they could have meat products that are especially low in saturated fat for people who mm -hmm. care about that. And then for other people who don't care about that, they could have meat that has extra fat. <laughs> because it will be more tasty or something, right? So it'll probably be better designed for consumers' tastes in addition to being cheaper, right? So like, there's just no, like, there's no reason why after trying that, then you would go to the inferior product, right? Um, so now you might think about like, are there other reasons? Uh, you might think, well, so there are health reasons why people become vegetarian. So like that could possibly be a reason why you still shouldn't eat the lab-grown meat. Um, but I wouldn't force people like if people don't care about their health and they just care about the taste then You know, <laughs> then, then they can do that, right? And those health related reasons that people might have to become vegetarian or vegan those are not moral reasons, right? Uh, I don't think so, right? Uh, I mean, it, it would be self-interested reasons. So I mean, I take it that that typically doesn't count like this, the self-interested reason by itself doesn't generate a moral obligation. Um, yeah. So, um, I mean, I think, like, I think the nutritional situation is, um, you know, most meat it, uh, contains saturated fat, which is not so healthy for your heart. 
Like most meat products are not so good for the heart, although they might have other nutrients that are hard to get. So the optimal diet for health reasons is probably not a vegan, is not a vegan diet, right? Um, because there are some nutrients that you'll be missing. Okay, but also um, the optimal diet is not eat meat all the time, right? The optimal, optimal diet is probably actually eating fish, right? And, you know, it's like limited animal products, but also mostly eating fruits and vegetables. Well, by the way, do you think that there's any problem with consuming uh, animal-derived products, like, for example, milk and eggs? Well, I mean, I think it's basically the same problem, right? So if you care about um, animal welfare, if you care about how the animals are treated, then um, it's the same problem, right? Because the animals on the dairy farms are treated in pretty much the same way, which is like with complete disregard, right? So like they're just like being abused all the time. Um, you know, similarly for um, eggs, you know, like the chickens, the laying hens are just like you know stuffed into the tiny cages they get deep beaked whatever they get they just get treated with complete disregard like all the other animals right uh they have a somewhat longer life i guess um because they're being kept around to provide the eggs or the milk in the case of the milk products um but you know still not so great right um, and by the way on that point of them having a longer life do you think that there are any good arguments in favor of the uh, of animal agriculture that, that would resemble that argument of, for example, there are usually the species, or, or I think all of them, the species that we use as animal sources of food products uh, have been artificially selected. And so some people argue that they wouldn't even exist in the first place if we didn't have the meat industry. And if we were to abolish it, then because they are not adapted to any sort of natural environment, they would go extinct. Do you think that there's something that that's something that we should take into account? Um, so, I mean, so all of these animals came from wild species. Uh, and then they were bred by people for whatever, you know, whatever characteristics we wanted. Uh, so if you released all of the livestock animals, um, you like, I assume most of them would not survive very long. Um, the wild counterparts, like whatever animals they came from, you know, I presume are still around. Um, but anyway, but, you know, think about the logic of it. So if you create um, creatures then you get to do whatever you want to them. Like, is that right? Because they wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for you, right? So like in some sense, okay, so the specific individual animals definitely wouldn't have existed if not for the meat industry, because they were just like those individuals were created by the meat industry people. Um, with that, and then you could say, well, that type of animal also wouldn't have existed. Um, you know, it depends upon how finely you individuate the type, right? Like there's some, okay, like I think there are some wild cows or at least there used to be. So anyway, but that's really not particularly relevant, right? So here's the story. Like imagine that we were breeding some people to be slaves, which by the way, the people did in the United States, right? Like 
Uh, you know, they first started importing slaves from Africa, but then there's like some time in the 1800s when they banned importation of slaves. And then, you know, the slave traders started breeding slaves from the existing population of slaves in America. And then, so after that, um, you have a bunch of slaves where you could say, oh, these people wouldn't have existed if it weren't for the slave trade. So does it follow from this that the slave trade is fine? And that like, we could do whatever we want. Like it's fine to enslave these people because they wouldn't have existed if it weren't for the slave trade. So I assume, I assume we reject that, right? That's not right. Uh, so like that seems analogous to, oh, these animals wouldn't exist if it weren't for the meat industry. So it's fine to do whatever we want. Right. Do you think that meat eaters should be held morally responsible for their consumer choices? Um, yes. So, I mean, people are responsible for their own decisions, right? Like, uh, you have free will, you can decide not to do it. There are lots of people who decided not to, uh, not to eat animal products anymore. So, you know, you could do it. So how could you not be responsible for it, right? Uh, I mean, I think some people are like, well, um, you know, somebody else is actually doing the torturing and killing. So I guess, I guess people feel like they're not responsible because somebody else is directly doing it. Right. But, you know, like if you, um, if you're patronizing somebody who's doing horrific wrongs for you, right, they're doing these wrong things to provide products for you and you're paying them for it. Like, I don't think you can say that you're not responsible. Right. This is sort of like, you know, when the mafia boss orders a hit and then later he says, well, I didn't pull the trigger. So, like, why are you blaming me? I didn't kill anyone, right? Um, it's like, no, you are still responsible. Okay, so uh, since we evolved eating meat and all sorts of animal products, do you think that it runs against people's intuitions to talk about animal ethics in any way? Um, I mean, to some extent, like I think when you first mention animal rights or animal welfare or whatever, um, like there are many people who have an immediate negative reaction and then um, many people sort of refuse to consider it and they like, you know, just try to dismiss the whole thing and not think about it. Okay, so like in that sense, there's a um, intuitive resistance, although like I'm a little reluctant to describe it this way because I think it might just be a self-interest resistance like right like when when people dismiss a moral position that if they were to accept it would require them to sacrifice their interests like I'm not sure whether they're having a genuine ethical intuition or they're just sort of trying to protect their self-interest but be that as it may um, like you can certainly you can certainly give arguments that appeal to normal intuitions Right. So like um, most people can see the point when you ask them, OK, so like, why is it OK to torture members of other species? So like you agree that um, it's not OK to torture you. Why is it OK to torture a creature that belongs to another species from you? And like most people can see the point of that question. They can see that that requires an answer. And then most people will give some answer and then it will be some like obviously ridiculous answer. Right, which will be easily refuted, which can also be seen, right? So like they will say, well, it's because I'm smart and the other species are stupid. And they go, okay, so suppose that you met a stupid person. Is it okay to torture them? Cause, you know, because you just said the reason it was okay to torture the animals was that they're stupid. So if you meet a stupid person, it's okay to torture that person, right? 
Okay, and then almost everyone will see the point of that too. Like they will have the immediate intuitive reaction that no, it's not okay to torture someone just because they're stupid, right? And then, the, and basically the same thing goes for everything else that they say about like why it's okay to torture the animals, right? Um, so, you know, you can appeal to intuitions that are not specific to vegans, like intuitions that almost everyone will have. Right. So uh, aside from the nutritional issues that we've already mentioned here that vegans might have if they adopt, of course, in this case, a strict vegetarian diet, do you think that veganism has any sort of major moral flaws? Um, no. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of what the moral flaws would be. Uh, yeah. Did, did you have anything in mind specifically there? Or? Uh, no, I mean, I personally agree with, with veganism. So I, I was just wondering if you thought there could be some. Yeah, I mean, you know, like you could imagine hypotheticals in which that would be the case, right? Which would be some like some terrible result that would happen from being vegan. But there aren't any that I think are actual. Yeah, I mean, perhaps uh, the, the only big one that comes to mind was the one we've already talked about. The, like, for example, abolishing the meat industry would potentially lead to the extinction of the animals used there. I mean, that's the only one that comes to my mind. I don't know. Oh, that's right, yeah. Like, so, you know, one thing that people have said is, um, well, you know, like the animals, like it's better to have a short, crappy life than not to exist at all. <laughs> now, that's really not obvious at all. Right? Um, so, um, you know, like uh, we create all these billions of animals every year and like on average they live for three months, right? That is surprisingly short, okay? But that's because the vast majority of them are chickens and um, yeah, that's how long, you know, and they pump them full of growth hormones and whatever to grow them really fast because it costs money to have the chickens there, right? So they have like a three month life of being stuffed in a tiny cage or, you know, just stuffed into a barn with a whole bunch of other chickens, um, you know, sitting in their own excrement, uh, breathing ammonia fumes because, you know, they pour ammonia all over the floor because that's cheaper than cleaning up the shit that's on the floor. Right? So they're like sitting in their own shit and then they have to breathe the ammonia fumes because they poured that on the floor instead of, t instead of cleaning it out. Okay, um, so that's your life, all right? Um, and you know, like you get your beak cut off or the end of the beak cut off to prevent you from pegging the other chickens. And, um, and there are nerve endings in the beak. So it probably feels, you know, about like having your nose chopped off. Okay, so, you know, that happens one time and then, you know, you're there for three months stuffed in with the other chickens. And then, uh, and then they cut your throat in order to eat you. Okay, so like that's the life of the vast majority of livestock animals. So is that better than not being born? I'm not sure that's better than not being born at all. Okay, like so, but anyway, so imagine that we were talking about people and somebody said, hey, I've got a plan. Um, we can vastly increase the human population of the world. What we could do is like, um, so we can make there be 10 times as many people. Now the catch is that all of these people are going to have miserable lives such as I just described. They're going to be like living in a tiny cage like this. So like they won't be able to move and they will live for three months. And you know, like one time in their life, somebody will chop off a body part without anesthetic 
and they'll be sitting in their own excrement for those three months, and then at the end, somebody will like bash their head in. Um, okay, and now you know you can push a button that will create 90 billion of these lives. Okay, or just leave it alone, and there could just be like you know people having normal lives, <laughs> but a lot fewer of them. Should you push the button to create the 90 billion people who live for three months and that have that miserable life? So I think most people will not do that, right? Most people do not think that that's a great thing. So, you know, like I don't think that we should do that with the animals, right? Right. And since we're talking about or questioning if it's better to not exist at all or to have a shitty short life in this case, uh, I would like to ask you, do you have any specific position on anti-natalism? I'm asking you that because I've had David Bennett around the show and he also extends his uh, anti-natalist ethics to uh, other animals. Yeah, um, my disagreement with David Benatar is I think that positive experiences are good and can outweigh negative experiences. So like, I think that the suffering that, you know, your offspring are going to have, so everybody has some suffering in their lives. I think that counts as a reason against having them. But I also think that the positive experiences count as a reason in favor of having them and that they can outweigh, like for most people, the positive experiences outweigh the negative experiences. So it, I'd like, I think it's okay to create them. Um, okay, there's a, there's a rights-based argument where you say, well, you haven't gotten their consent. You have to get the consent of the, of the baby before you have the baby and you can't do that right so you know you can't do it but i think like the vast majority of people will um retroactively consent as the vast majority of people after they're born will be glad that they're born and if asked they will say yes i don't mind that you had me right because you know most of them will have lives that are worth living so like i think that makes it okay and do you think that it would it would compel you in any way to i mean to accept more the arguments of antinatalists if we take into consideration the fact that um, there are many people in the world that suffer in many different ways i mean just the just if we talk about suicide rates and rates of depression and so on it's a huge number of people do you think that it would make a good argument to not procreate due to precautionary reasons oh well um yeah so there are some people whose lives apparently are you know there's more suffering than enjoyment right i say apparently because like some people kill themselves so you could you could infer that they had more suffering than enjoyment in their lives um but like that's a really small minority of the total right so, uh, wait, I used to know the statistics. Um, how many suicides are there per year? I, don't, I, think, I, it's I, I, th I think it's uh, 800,000 across the globe per year. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and how many deaths are there per year, right? I don't know, is it something like 50 million? It's some... I'm, I'm not sure of that number. Okay. Anyway, so many times more. <laughs> so in other words, most people don't kill themselves. It's only a tiny minority. Okay, so like I agree that there are some people whose lives are not worth living, like they're a negative utility. But it looks like the great, the vast majority of lives are positive utilities. So, I mean, it looks like it's okay to create a life 
right? Um, of course, you know, this could be modified by your circumstances. If you're in particular circumstances where it looks like you will have a, you're especially likely to have a miserable child, maybe then you shouldn't procreate, right? But if it looks like you're going to have a, um, you know, you're in good enough circumstances that you will very probably have a happy child, right, who will not cause lots of harm to other people, like that could also be relevant, um, then it's okay to have the child, right? So, for example, if you live in poverty and probably your child's future prospects will not be that good, would that be an example? Yeah, it seems like a, you know, at least that's a consideration, right? I mean, even most people living in poverty, I think they would say their lives were worth living. I think they would say, you know, they're glad that they were born, whatever. Um, but, you know, you might think like, um, you know, you're like a 13-year-old homeless person, right? Should you have a child? Then I would go like, mm, no, probably not, right? Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's just go back f to veganism for a little bit and to, to end the interview, just two or three more questions. Uh, do you think that uh, carnivores are a problem? Because, I mean, uh, I, I was about to ask you if you think they are immoral, but maybe that question doesn't make sense uh, applied to other animals. But do you think that uh, from a human moral perspective, carnivores are an issue? Yeah, I mean, you mean non-human carnivores, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, sure. Human carnivores sure. are a problem. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, they're amoral, right? Um, because they're, they're unable to understand morality. Um, the amount of suffering in the natural world is a problem, right? Like there's just this vast amount of suffering in the natural world. Um, so, you know, if you had a way of ending that, then, and, and it didn't involve killing everyone, <laughs> then you should end it. Right? Or, you know, doing something similarly horrible, right? Um, Unfortunately, we don't have a way of ending it, right? So, I mean, um, you know, if you could, um, if you could cause there not to be any carnivores and it wouldn't destroy the ecology, then I think you should do that. Okay, so if we were to learn that, for example, if by any means we could uh, render carnivores, I, I mean, the, they could not procreate anymore and it wouldn't have any sort of major impact in their ecosystems. You think that could be something to consider morally? Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, if there was a feasible way of doing that, like I think, of course you should do that, right? But of course, in the real world, you know, eliminating the carnivores from the food chain is just going to disrupt the ecology, right? It's going to cause you know other crazy things to happen. Or so I assume, right? Uh, so like in the real world, this isn't feasible. Plus, like we don't, like, just like we don't even know how to do it in the first place, right? Okay, yeah. but you know, you can imagine a hypothetical where that would be the thing to do, right? So, um, you know, I like I try to think why somebody would not agree with this. Like, you know, suffering is bad, right? Like if you could like cause there to be a huge amount less suffering and we stipulate that there wouldn't be any big negative consequences, then obviously you should do it. Um, the only thing I can think is people would think, well, maybe there's like intrinsic value in um, nature and like the existing species or whatever. Right. So, yeah, I just don't think that really. Like, 
So I think there are value in individual, there's value in individual organisms. Um, but I don't think there's a value in just like maintaining the status quo in nature. Right. And by the way, like, um, so, you know, like nature is constantly changing, like species become extinct naturally. Uh, is that, is that intrinsically bad? Um, and if so, if you don't think so, then it's not clear why it's bad if it's caused by human beings. Cause like, you know, well, I mean, uh, a species can cause another species to go extinct in nature, right? Right. Why aren't we just like that? Like we're just, we're species that evolved naturally. You know, why don't you think of us as part of nature? And then we did something that caused a species to go extinct. All right. Okay. Now I do believe in the value of the individual life. So I, you know, like we shouldn't cause, shouldn't cause harm to individual animals unnecessarily. Right. Right. Uh, okay. So uh, I mean, in that sense, for example, at what point would it be immoral for animals to drive uh, to for humans, sorry, to drive other animals to extinction? Because even during our evolutionary history, when we were only still hunter-gatherer societies, we drove megafauna in several different continents to extinction. So, uh, I mean, would that already be something immoral we were doing back then? Uh, I mean, I think it involved harm to the individual animals, so like that could be immoral, right? Although at that time, the people might have been merely amoral because they might have not had moral understanding. Um, yeah, so I mean, there could be something immoral about it because of the harm to the individual animals. If it didn't harm any individual animals, then no, right? Um, but, you know, obviously, like they're killing the animals, so. You know, that would be harming those individuals. But if they just like, if they persuaded, you know, the, whatever, persuaded the woolly mammoths not to reproduce, and then there weren't any woolly mammoths after that, then you're like, okay, but uh, assume there's the same amount, total amount of life, right? So there are other organisms, they're just not woolly mammoths. Yeah, then I don't see what the problem is. Yeah, perhaps what I was thinking about was that because back then we were using rudimentary technology to hunt the animals down and now we have things like the meat industry, which is basically animal farming on a large scale, that perhaps there would be degrees of immorality here. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, clearly the hunting is a lot less bad, right? Um, like the, you know, the way that the animal dies after, um, primitive people hunt it is comparable to the way it was going to die if the people hadn't hunted it. Cause it would have been like, most of them would have been killed by another predator. Right. Um, but you know, it doesn't like ruin their entire life right? <laughs> it doesn't like the primitive people didn't force them to live in tiny cages in like, you know, sitting in their own excrement and then, and like cause them to only have a three month long life. Right. They didn't do that. So they were nowhere near as bad as we are today. Yeah. So, okay. So uh, now is perhaps the, the most controversial question of the entire interview. So does veganism have anything to say about cannibalism? So for example, let's imagine that someone dies of natural causes. Is it immoral for another person to consume their body? Uh, I mean, so it like depends upon the circumstances, <laughs> right? So, 
uh, like, I don't know, did the person consent to being eaten before <laughs> their death? Like, I guess, because I guess they own their body so they could say what happens to their body, their diet, you know, just like they have a will to dispose of their material goods. So, okay, so if they consented to being eaten, then yeah, it's permissible. <laughs> that seems fine. Uh, you know, other people might get upset about this, but I guess I think the other people don't really have a right over it. So it's only the person who actually died who had a right over his body. But but I would imagine then that that uh, I mean that sense of property over one's own body would it also apply to other animals? For example, if someone found uh, a dead animal on on the woods, would it be morally wrong to eat it? Um, no. <laughs> so uh, yeah, did, did the animal consent? Well, I'm. Um, I don't really think that they have the same rights. So I'm not sure that animals have property rights. Right. And so, okay, does it have rights? Does it have a right to decide what's done with its own body? Uh, I don't know, but like a right to decide what it's done with its own body after it dies? Like, yeah, I guess I just don't think, don't think that. Um, why not? You know, maybe partly because I think the animal doesn't have preferences about that. Like, I think people have super strong preferences about their body after they die, but I think, like, a wild animal doesn't have any preferences about that. So, you know, like, I, I don't really see what the problem would be. I don't see who the victim is in you know, taking the dead body. Okay, yeah. also, actually, by the way, if you don't take the dead body, like, okay, so, like, there's a deer that died of natural causes. If you don't take it, it's going to be eaten by other animals. So... You know, like even if the deer really didn't want to be eaten by anyone after it dies, you know, its preferences are not going to be satisfied either way. Yeah. Okay, so uh, just one last question then. Uh, now talking more on pragmatic terms, do you think that if we all went vegan, that would be in any way... Uh, a problem for the environment? Because, uh, I mean... Uh, of course, th these are complicated questions, but do you think that um, it would be feasible to produce enough plant-based uh, food sources for humans, for all humans, uh, uh, to obtain the nutrients that we need to obtain from them? Or, or uh, do, do you think that, for example, uh, the the plants we produce for uh, animals to consume animals who are part of the meat industry. Uh, do you think that that would be enough for uh, for other people to eat? Yeah, I mean, so when you think about it, this should be obvious, right? Um, when they raise animals, they have to feed the animals. They raise animals for human consumption. They have to feed the animals. And the amount of food they have to feed the animals is larger than the amount of food they're going to get out of it. Right. And like that has to be true because of like conservation of energy because, and because most of the animal is not being eaten. Like, right, because you don't eat the bones and you don't eat the brain and whatever these other organs and such that people don't want. So like um, so the amount of food that's going in, like the amount of calories that are going into the animal has to be greater than the amount of calories that people are going to get when they slaughter the animal. Right. So if we stopped raising animals for food and we just raised plants with the same amount of resources, you could produce more calories, right? 
So, I mean, like, you know, converting to a lot of people converting to a vegan diet would make uh, food more available. Right? It would lower food prices. It would lower their prices for vegetable foods. Uh, and then, you know, it would be easier for people in uh, poor countries to afford enough food and so on. So, you know, that's an added benefit. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's end the interview there. Just before, uh, just before we go, Dr. Humer, would you like to tell people where they can find your work on the internet? Oh, yeah. Uh, like, you go to my website, owl232.net. So, you know, the word owl, O-W-L, followed by the number 232.net. Uh, and then, you know, there you'll find a link to my blog, which is fake news, uh, you know, fake news.net. And noose is spelled N-O-U-S, like the Greek word for mind or something. Um, yeah, and um, you know, I've got I've got eight books now, which you can find on Amazon. So. Okay, great. So it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for coming on the show. Yep, it's been fun. Thanks for having me. Me. Hi guys, thank you for watching this episode until the end. The channel depends on your support to keep running and so I would like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Britain page and consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even just $1, would already be a great help. You also have links to PayPal in the description box of the interview and otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, comment and subscribe to the channel. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, and Blanchett, Pereira Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Fordens, Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Vissel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Vosbo, Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Mark Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, George Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Plyfe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omri Hickson, Fergal Kusen, Evan Bodrenkwal, Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslam Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, JW, João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sullen Wilson, Yasila Des Araujo, Ian Solon, Roman Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, my producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafinia, Kian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Venegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardis France, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rogieski, Rosie, James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.